This is a recording of Joseph Smith Read the Words by Stanford Carmack, published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, read by Stanford Carmack. The article begins with a selection of verses from 2 Nephi chapter 27, verses 20, 22, 24. Wherefore thou shalt read the words which I shall give unto thee. Wherefore, when thou hast read the words which I have commanded thee, the Lord shall say unto him that shall read the words that shall be delivered him. This study examines the assertions of two investigators who have discussed the nature of the translation of the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith's role in it, Brant Gardner and Orson Scott Card. Their writings on the subject have declared that Smith's own language frequently made its way into the wording of the Book of Mormon. However, a comparison of the earliest text with the textual record tells us that this is an incorrect view of the translation. The linguistic fingerprint of the Book of Mormon in hundreds of different ways is early modern English. Smith himself, out of a presumed idiosyncratic, quasi-biblical style, would not have translated and could not have translated the text into the form of the earliest text. Had his own language often found its way into the wording of the earliest text, its form would be very different from what we encounter. It is still appropriate to call Joseph Smith the translator of the Book of Mormon, but he wasn't a translator in the usual sense of the term. He was a translator in the sense of being the human involved in transferring or retransmitting a concrete form of expression, mostly English words, received from the Lord. The above language of 2 Nephi 27 indicates such a state of affairs as well, and so I have undertaken to critique some of the observations that have been made with respect to Book of Mormon translation, and to lay out an entirely different view of the text, which has been argued for by Royal Skousen for quite a while now. Card and Gardner represent the latest iteration of a line of proponents of the theory that Smith himself, from his own language, was responsible for the, much of the wording of the text. They are in good company. Former advocates of this view include B.H. Roberts, John A. Witso, Sidney B. Sperry, Daniel H. Ludlow, and Robert L. Millett. A general problem with this approach has been that it restricts a divine translation to what the analyst has deemed to be probable, having decided that divine action would not have proceeded in certain ways. A driver of this has been the perceived ungrammatical nature of the dictation, the earliest text. For the first time, however, we can carefully compare it with earlier English, and we now find that the matching is extensive and surprisingly solid. As a result of this newly available evidence, in the future critics would do well to forbear giving grammatical opinions till they have examined the early modern English textual record. Many researchers, including Brant Gardner, have gone beyond the grammatical and considered other related features of the text, arguing, arguing that they point to Smith acting as an English-language translator. Gardner writes, We see a clear dependence on Joseph's language culture when idiomatic expressions occur that emphasize, emphasize cultural content from Joseph Smith's time rather than that of the ancient text. In other words, Gardner asserts that various textual features found in the Book of Mormon necessarily point to Joseph's own linguistic knowledge directly influencing word selection. There are problems with this view. To begin with, it must be admitted that a divine faculty could be responsible for such items 
since we cannot reasonably limit the reach and ability of such an undertaking. A divine translation could have carried out a functional-slash-conceptual translation of some of the plate script into English, as opposed to a literal translation. Therefore, evidence of functional-slash-conceptual equivalence in the translation is not a conclusive argument in favor of Smith being the English language translator. A divine translation is possible with the same textual evidence that Gardner presents, which he thinks indicates that Smith acted as a translator, in the usual sense of the term. Part of the problem is that misinformation about Book of Mormon language has accumulated for decades, continuing to this day. Not only has the grammar been declared to be faulty, but often language has been taken to be of more recent origin than it actually may be. In particular, phrases like mighty change and song of redeeming love arose at least in the early modern period. Consequently, we cannot say with certainty that these came from burnt over district revival language of the early 19th century, when and where correspondence has been noted. Hence, there is not necessarily dependence on Smith's language culture in these cases, nor with many other similar phrases that have been investigated, such as infinite atonement. Alma 34.12. Therefore, there can be nothing which is short of an infinite atonement which will suffice for the sins of the world. 16.54. Anthony Burgess. Whether the law be perfectly satisfied and an infinite atonement made. From the above Google Books excerpt, we plainly see that infinite atonement was used as early as the middle of the 17th century by a nonconformist English clergyman who died in 1664. Here is an example of the phrase mighty change from the early part of the same century, paired with a Book of Mormon passage containing the same accompanying verb. 1612, Richard Rogers. And how doth God work this mighty change in men? Alma 5.12. And according to his faith, there was a mighty change wrought in his heart. In addition, a Puritan divine no later than the year 1680 use the striking phrase, sing the song of redeeming love, which is also found in the Book of Mormon, Stephen Charnock, and see the saints there in their white robes with their harps in their hands and hear them sing the song of redeeming love, Alma 526, and if ye have felt to sing the song of redeeming love. We see that it continued into the early 18th century. Another excerpt from the late 18th century indicates that the usage stems from Revelation 5, 9, and 14, 3. One can find quite a few examples in the early 19th century so that we have a textually verified chain of use from the 17th century on. Gardner also asserts that imagery such as the following, which involves a hanging sword, means that Smith was translating from ideas into his own words. Alma 60.29 Except ye do bestir yourselves in the defense of your country and your little ones, the sword of justice doth hang over you, yea, and it shall fall upon you. As noted, functional conceptual equivalence is also possible in a divine translation. So the presence of this imagery in the text does not conv convincingly argue for Smith being a translator in the usual sense of the word. This language is also found in an earlier time, 1587, Robert Southwell. The sword of God's justice hangeth over our souls, ready for our sins to divide. Gardner has chosen to believe that every instance of apparently obsolete lexis found in the earliest text was current in Smith's dialect. It is important to note that there are more than 30 instances of apparently obsolete non-biblical vocabulary found in the earliest text, 
so it is highly likely, in the absence of comprehensive specific evidence to the contrary, that at least one of them was not part of his dialect. Here I provide a quick list of possibles, many of them mention, mentioned before by Royal Skousen. Here is a list of vocabulary, including become for oneself, but if, choice, commend, counsel, curious, depart, desire, desirous, detect, do away, extinct, for this cause, that, give, go by, hurl, manifest, mar, obtain, pitch, battle, rebellion, retain, scatter, scort, stripe, suppose, to that, turn upon, withstand. Biblical items include, again, cast, errand, establish, for, frankly, require, suffer, turn again, wrap together. This is powerful evidence since semantic shifts in sense are unpredictable and not recoverable for later speakers when prior usage has become obsolete. Just one truly obsolete instance forces Smith to be a reader of that lexical item of English. Furthermore, one instance means that it is reasonable to think that others were obsolete as well and that they were given to Joseph Smith. And of course, some nearly obsolete words would have been rare in his time and unlikely to have entered his mind as well. It is therefore probable that such words would have been read. Textual evidence suggests that some senses were dead before American colonization. Consider, for instance, depart, meaning divide, intransitive. Helaman 8.11 Moses smote upon the waters of the Red Sea, and they departed hither and thither meaning, and the waters divided to the left and right. The last dated example in the Oxford English Dictionary is 1577, and the latest one that I have found in a 500 million word corpus is the following. 1615 Hilkiah Crook, but the axillary vein departeth into two branches. Obsolescence before American colonization also appears to be the case with counsel, meaning ask counsel of or consult. Last dated, OED example is 1547, and but if, meaning unless, the last dated OED example is from Edmund Spencer's Fairy Queen, a 1596 poem that is full of language that was archaic by its year of publication. There are other possibilities beyond these three examples. In addition, even under the un unlikely scenario that every apparently obsolete lexical instance was part of Smith's dialect, the view of Smith qua translator almost certainly fails because of abundant and pervasive syntactic evidence that demands a non-dialectal early modern English view. A small subset of this evidence is mentioned immediately below. This in turn supports probably obsolete lexical evidence. It is apparent that Gardner continues to ignore this substantial syntactic evidence, which argues directly against Smith being a translator. Yes, there is plenty of language in the earliest texts that had been used for centuries and which continued in, into Smith's time. However, because there is a considerable amount of language that we find exclusively in the early modern era, Either Smith had read widely in older literature, some of it virtually inaccessible to him, and had mastered its syntax, or he must have read words off the instrument in those instances. Different types of systematic usage, for example, 16th century past tense syntax with did, heavy that complementation with verbs like command, cause, suffer, and desire, the completely consistent use of the short adverbial form exceeding with adjectives, and morphosyntactic patterns and variation involving the th plural and even the s plural only match the systematic usage of the early modern period and are found throughout the text 
As a result, the approach of Gardner, 2011, and others ends up being one in which Smith continually switched during the dictation thousands of times between reading and translating. The view that Smith consistently read a concrete form of expression and did not translate in the usual sense of the word is an accurate, consistent, comprehensive view that is asserted by the scripture itself. Gardner discusses biblical use implicating Joseph Smith in the process of altering Isaiah passages and employing New Testament phrasing in Old Testament passages. He writes, It is easy to see how Joseph could be so heavily influenced by the KJV New Testament. It is harder to explain why a divine interpreter would be. That is a speculative statement to which one might reasonably respond, why couldn't a divine interpreter choose to mix Old Testament and New Testament language? To my mind, a divine translation could quite understandably mix biblical language in conveying important truths. What agency could more properly and judiciously do so than a divine one? Biblical quoting in all its variety was possible as part of a divine translation and more likely than Joseph Smith doing it. Otherwise, we must imagine that he had a truly masterful command of biblical language in 1829 and the ability to do it during a short dictation period. The switch in this Isaiah passage is interesting. 2 Nephi 8.16 And I have put my words in thy mouth, and hath covered thee in the shadow of mine hand. Note hath, not have. Isaiah 51.16 has, And I have put my words in thy mouth, and I have covered thee in the shadow of mine hand. This distinctive morphosyntactic form of the Book of Mormon passage, I have plus pa past participle, and half plus past participle, is just like these two examples from the 1660s. I think I have made myself a scorn, and half endangered my reputation. I have chid him for his lewd life, and half withdrawn myself from his ill company. The close inflectional contrast, driven by syntactic context, and the matching Book of Mormon usage are noteworthy. There are other examples to be found in the earliest text like this one. But 2 Nephi 8.16 is interesting for another reason. The 1611 King James Bible has and have covered, while the 1769 Blaney update inserted the pronoun I. The Book of Mormon has the 1611 wording in part, with a non-biblical early modern English tweak, half. Earlier Bibles do not use the verb cover here. So the Book of Mormon follows the lexical usage of the King James Bible, employing, however, an inflectional option of the early modern era that is not clearly found in King James English. Also, Smith seems to have been given the Septuagint Coverdale language upon all the ships of the sea found in 2 Nephi 12.16, but missing in the King James Bible. He certainly didn't refer to that version of the Bible in that instance. By continuing to maintain the strained view that Smith consulted a Bible, during the translation, which there has never been any eyewitness testimony of, Gardner 2011 has unfortunately cemented prior damage done to our understanding of the book's translation. Smith was also likely to be a reader in the following passage, which is substantially different from the corresponding Isaiah language. 2 Nephi 7.2 I make the rivers a wilderness and their fish to stink, because the waters are dried up, and they dieth because of thirst. Isaiah 52. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stinketh, because there is no water, and dieth for thirst. Nowhere does the King James Bible use they with the th plural. Smith would not have known that it was occasional early modern English usage, a 1565 example. The ship drawing near unto the land, as soon as they are touched with the smell of air, 
they dieth out of hand. Lest the reader think that this was merely a case of Smith overdoing the biblical, I would point out that the TH plural isn't used stupidly in the Book of Mormon. It isn't overused or underused, and the earliest text manifests inflectional variation and differential usage rates typical of early modern English. The match is solid. More examples of this are provided below. The arguments found at Gardner, 2011, page 184, about tense usage with respect to 1st Nephi 15.13 and 1st Nephi 19.13 are without merit. They do not hold up to scrutiny because these are prophetic contexts where earlier future events are referred to as if they have already occurred, and later future events are referred to as yet to occur. Abinadi implemented this approach, stating it explicitly here, Mosiah 16.6. And now if Christ had not come into the world, speaking of things to come as though they had already come, there could have been no redemption. In addition, Gardner misses Skousen's treatment of this issue in his analysis of textual variants. There, Skousen has argued that the tenses employed are appropriate in their context. Even if we skew the matter in favor of Gardner's view, it can only be inconclusive. Moreover, discussions about textual anachronisms are meaningless from the perspective of, div of a divine translation that was able to include English language cultural terms that had been in use for centuries and often all the way up to the year 1829. Finally, Gardner wrote the following. The problem of positing Joseph Smith as a reader is that it tells us next to nothing about the translation itself. I don't think that viewing Smith as a reader creates a problem. See the second Nephi 27 language set forth at the beginning of this article. But since an examination of early modern English syntax tells us that the earliest text is similar to it in form in hundreds of instances, then it is accurate to state that it appears that Smith read revealed words to his scribe. And that is simply because it is highly likely that a significant amount of early modern English lexis and syntax found in the text was unknown to him. And in the near future, we will learn a great deal about the English language translation by studying the earliest text in relation to the textual record of earlier English. In summary, Gardner's position must be abandoned in light of substantial textual evidence which makes it untenable. Skousen's tight control position is the correct one. Not only does Gardner, 2011, page 192, generally mislead us by a blanket assertion that the Book of Mormon was, was formed in imitation of King James language and style, when hundreds of pieces of lexical and syntactic evidence clearly say otherwise. The book is also ultimately wrong about Smith being the English language translator of the script. The data that follow give further evidence of this position. In this section, I address and elucidate various arguments made by Orson Scott Card more than 15 years ago in favor of Joseph Smith being the English language translator. Gardner, 2011, page 184, Note 2 mentions Card's analysis and agrees with his assessment that there are many grammatical errors in the translation. While there are grammatical errors in the earliest text, there are not many of them from the perspective of early modern English. That is its language, but its true character has been obscured over the ensuing decades by thousands of edits. Card asserts that the B usage in the following passage is a case of double use of future subjunctive on both sides of the logical assertion. 2 Nephi 2.13 And if there be no righteousness, there be no happiness. The second use of B may be viewed as an extension of the present tense subjunctive from if there be, or as a case of indicative B. Either way we view it, it is a tested usage of the early modern period. 1591 example from Henry Barrow. And then there be no space granted them to fly or grace to be preserved. 1645 example by Alexander Ross. Fifthly, if there be no accidents in the soul, 
then there be no habits, nor actions, nor intelligible species in her. The following biblical passage might employ the phrase he be due to closely preceding, preceding usage. Numbers 5.30 For when the spirit of jealousy cometh upon him, and he be jealous over his wife, and shall set the woman before the Lord. Sixteen verses earlier, there are two instances of, and he be jealous, after a hypothetical. In the above verse, however, be is clearly paired with indicative cometh. Discussing early modern English, Barber wrote, In the present tense, we often find indicative R and subjunctive B, but some writers use B for both, especially early in the period. Indicative B is also common in the construction there be. That further explains there be no happiness seen in 2 Nephi 2.13. It also explains why the plural is the typical biblical use of what Barber calls indicative B, usage carried over from earlier English into modern dialects and colloquial speech. In the following excerpts, B takes the place of indicative R, as is explicitly shown in the first and last example, Isaiah 2.6. Because they be replenished from the east, and are soothsayers like the Philistine. Matthew 7.13, and many there be which go in thereat. Acts 19.26, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hand. Next card points out a passage that appears to be ungrammatically, not just stylistically, redundant. Alma 9.16, for there are many promises which is extended to the Lamanites, for it is because of the traditions of their fathers that causeth them to remain in their state of ignorance. Before the apparent redundancy, which involves because and causeth, we see the S plural of early modern English, promises which is, as in the following example, 1652, Christopher Love, he that is without the Lord Jesus Christ the foundation of hope, and without the promises which is the pillar of hope must needs be without all true hopes of heaven. 1663, Richard Hubberthorne. But the saints' baptism we own, and the believers, and the promises which is to the seed, thou hast cleared thyself from. We also see the th plural of early modern English used right after the relative pronoun that, as in the following examples, 1479, which answered that of all things that causeth most pain to a damned soul was loss of time. 1634, Robert Bolton. It is men's corruptions and profane hearts causeth all the stir. Both the TH plural and the S plural were more often found after relative pronouns in earlier English, and so it is in the Book of Mormon. Interestingly, it is reasonable to interpret the relative pronoun that in Alma 9.16 as non-restricted. We expect the relative pronoun which in such a reading since in modern English, non-restrictive that is rarely seen. But in early modern English, it was more common. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, by the modern period, it was confined to poetic and rhetorical use. Barber, 1997, pages 209 to 10, discusses this syntax, giving a Shakespearean example of non-restrictive or continuative that. My foolish rival that her father liked from two gentlemen. Recast for clarity, the relevant part of this Book of Mormon verse could read as follows. Their current condition is because of the traditions of their fathers, which traditions cause them to remain in their state of ignorance. I have play, I replaced the pronoun it with the first italicized phrase, placing a comma before the relative wit. As is made explicit above, their forefathers' traditions caused them to remain in their state of ignorance. Here are similar examples with that and wit. 1593. The use is to teach us that whensoever the Lord dealeth so with us, with us, it is because of the hardness of our hearts that otherwise will not be thoroughly softened. 1602. It was because of the plague that tormented them much. 1627. For the church did it not because of their teaching which caused them to err. 
As Skousen points out, we find the same construction elsewhere in the earliest text, Hosiah 7.20, and behold, it is because of our iniquities and abominations that has brought us into bondage. I have added a comma after abominations to indicate a non-restrictive reading. In other words, their iniquities and abominations brought them into slavery. The current LES text has it wrong here, Hosiah 7.20, that he has brought us into bondage. It adds a he where the earliest text does not have one. Skousen writes, for the third printing of the 1905 LDS Chicago edition. In 1907, the pronoun he was added to the last clause of this passage. All subsequent LDS editions from 1911 on followed this reading with the he. The selection of he is consistent with the verb form has, which is found in all the extent textual sources. The editing here suggests the possibility that he might have been accidentally lost during the early transmission of the text. The verb form has, however, is a likely instance of the early modern English S plural after non-restrictive that. Recast we have. Our current condition is because of our iniquities and abominations which have brought us into bondage. For those who doubt that has might have been used by the literate with plural antecedents in early modern English, I provide the following examples along with an exact Book of Mormon variational map. 1653. It must be an entire heart and none of those that has been pierced with a thousand arrows. 1658 and strike down all those that has got the words but not the power. 1668, and now a few words by way of tender advice to those who has been long seeking a pure church. Mosiah 8.17, but a seer can know of things which has passed, and also of things which is to come. 1696, was not that I was really present there, or that I am troubled with that itch of scribbling to write of those things which has already employed the pens of so many worthy men. 1681. The whole strain of them that has been taken off by the hand of justice have so behaved themselves at the last cast. Alma 57.36. And I trust that the souls of them which has been slain have entered into the rest of their God. The last pair of examples provide strong, striking evidence of correspondence because we see the same principled variation. The normal singular verb form is used after the relative pronoun. And the normal plural verb form is used after the complex subject. The reason for the variation is that there was a greater tendency in early modern English to use the S plural after relative pronouns than after noun phrases. Occasionally, the difference ended up being expressed overtly in a compact, contrastive passage. And that is what we see in Alma 5736, the intriguing variation of the early era. We find it also with half have, was, were, in Mosiah 24.15, and is, are. Here are two examples of the latter, along with a related pair. 1588, that the most part of these rivers, those which do distill and run from the mountains, which is towards the west, are very rich of gold. 1607, for the lips of the wounds, which is made by contusion, are cut off and burned. 1615, it is true in my opinion that their distrust of all things which is still recommended unto them by reason of the infinite number of cheaters which are seen in Paris is the greatest policy they have. Alma 32.21, ye hope for things which is not seen which are true. Next card mentions that the Book of Mormon contains some ungrammatical gerundive constructions a structure that lacks the preposition of before the object, as in the following example, Second Nephi 3.24, And do that thing which is great in the sight of God, unto the bringing to pass much restoration. Card thought that the above phrasing should have been the bringing to pass of much restoration. Yet this is not ungrammatical, but early modern English usage found in Shakespeare and elsewhere. 1601, All's well that ends well. For on the reading it, 
he changed almost into another man. 1566. Because as the truth of the body was to be eaten, so the manner of the eating it was determined. The construction actually carried it into the modern period. The co-referential use of you right before thou is also fairly typical early modern English. Second Nephi 2.1. And now Jacob, I speak unto you. Thou art my firstborn in the days of my tribulation in the wilderness. 1496. All that is common unto them may happen unto you. Thou art but a man. 1668. Now know and consider this day what from God shall be said unto you. Thou much dishonorest the pardoning grace of God. 1668. When will it say unto you, Thou hast served me long enough. Thou hast served thy pleasures and thy estate. It is even found in the King James Bible, Ezekiel 36.13. Because they say unto you, Thou land devourest up men, and hast bereaved thy nation. Second person pronoun usage in the Book of Mormon shows extensive variation. Virtually everything in, the, in this domain that has been objected to by many critics can be found in either the Bible or the textual record. Thou, etc., used with plural reference. For example, Isaiah 65.18. You used as a subject. For example, the 1611 KJB. Ye used for singular. For example, Shakespeare. Ye used as an object. For example, Shakespeare. Co-referential ye thou, for example, Tyndale, ye you alternation, for example, Shakespeare, co-referential you thou, for example, Ezekiel 36.13, close objective and subjective ye and you usage, for example, Marlowe, as well as no st inflection in the past tense. As one example, the following passage exhibits multiple switching between thou and you. 1674, William Penn, here again thou let us drop, and you rest the scriptures to your own destruction, as the unlearned and unstable do. And is not this dangerous in them? Then thou bringest in this, and to you it is dangerous to read or speak of them. Next up for criticism is the use of the TH plural in the text is in this example, Mosiah 12.20. What meaneth the words which are written? As mentioned last, discussed this early modern English phenomenon around the same time that Card wrote his article. Other linguists such as Barber had discussed it previously. 1585. What meaneth the words grace and mercy brought with him? 1530. What meaneth the witnesses, ordinances, and laws? Language from William Tyndale. 1580. What meaneth the terrible threatening against wicked and vicious liver? The earliest text is full of early modern English. That is why the TH plural is found throughout. Next card confronted the use of what is a simple relative. Second Nephi 32.3. The words of Christ will tell you all things what you should do. Although it isn't biblical, we do find this in the textual record of earlier English, as well as in later dialectal and colloquial speech. 1496. Is the people bound to obey to the Pope, to their bishop, to their curate? In all things what they will bid them do. 1643. The Levites whom God hath set over you to teach you in all things what ye should do, lest otherwise you provoke God to punish you. The matching between the last example and 2 Nephi 32.3 is excellent. All things what ye should do. Card mentions the following as failing to employ the subjunctive. Mosiah 4.16. And ye will not suffer that the beggar putteth up his petition to you in vain, and turn him out. The subjunctive was usually observed in this type of context in early modern English. 1551. God will not suffer that they be tempted above their power. 1550. But if he suffered that the one of the parties were destroyed. And we even fight it in the Book of Mormon with bare verb. Mosiah 11. 24. Yea, and I will suffer them that they be smitten by their enemy. Alma 39.11. Suffer not that the devil lead away your heart again after those wicked harlots. But the subjunctive was not always used in this context. 15.17. How may this be that man by patience suffereth and desireth that nature fleeth? Moreover, in the past tense, the verb suffer did not always trigger subjunctive were, 
or an auxiliary functioning as a subjunctive mark, such as should or might. 1550. He suffered that the payment of the soldiers was delayed by the said Tisiphernes. 1607. And saying that God had suffered that the bond of their conjunction was dissolved. In addition, the use of the syntax would not suffer with finite complementation, and the auxiliary should is fairly common in the Book of Mormon eight times, and not hard to find in early modern English, but found only once in the King James Bible, Mark 11.16, and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple, Second Nephi 31, for I, Nephi, would not suffer that ye should suppose that ye are more righteous than the Gentile shall. Examples from early modern English, William Caxton, 1481. Then the Lord sent word to Peter that he would not suffer that they should enter into the town, 1541, Thomas Eliot. He would not suffer that any of them should be apprehended or punished. 1674. Therefore the eternal law that annexes immortality to innocence would not suffer that he should remain in the state of death. Also there is rare layered syntax involving doubled pronominals with should found in the Book of Mormon. But I would not suffer them that they should break this covenant which they had made. 1473. But Jupiter would not suffer them that they should help him in any manner. All this is more evidence that the Book of Mormon is a well-formed early modern English text that would have been difficult to derive from the Bible non -ex. Next up for consideration is the resumptive that in this passage, Mosiah 8.4. And it came to pass that after he had done all this, that King Limhi dismissed the multitude. Resumptive that continues to this day. The following excerpts match the usage well with a repetition of that, along with it came to pass and a time conjunction. 1677. And it came to pass that when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, that David took an harp. 1680. Now it came to pass that when the executioner had smitten off St. Dennis his head, that he caught it up between his arms. Finally, Carr discusses has hath variation of the Book of Mormon. He understandably didn't know it. The earliest text employs has slightly less than 10% of the time. The current LDS text is roughly one-third has, two-thirds hath. Similarly, Shakespeare employed has a little more than 15% of the time. Also, in Ebo, Early English Books Online, we find that the decade of the 1660s matches the has usage rate found in the earliest text. Card mentions closely occurring has-hath variation in Mosiah 4, 8 through 9 as a slip-up of Smith's, but it was not present in the printer's manuscript during the 1831st edition. Still, the following example, and there are others, exhibits the close variation that he was trying to point out. Alma 29.10 Then do I remember what the Lord has done for me, yea, even that he hath heard my prayer, as done hath heard. Here are some 17th century examples of this variation. On a sudden a thunderclap hath been heard, that has amazed the native. Apply what he hath heard. The difference in divisions of the laws has been made in diverse manner. Hath heard has been. That one from 1651, Thomas Hobbes, Leviathan. And so we see that the blunders which Card thought that Smith had made as a translator are actually instances of early modern English. In some cases, Smith would not have been familiar with the language. It is possible to present and discuss scores of questionable bits of grammar found in the earliest text. In virtually every instance, we find them in the textual record of early modern English. Here is with plural noun phrases. Mosiah 18.8, Behold, here is the waters of Mormon. 16.03, But here is the heights of their folly and error. Singular and plural riches. Helaman 13.31, Time cometh that he curseth their riches that it becometh slippery, that ye cannot hold them. 1598. Consider that where much riches is, there are many that eat and devour them. Switching from that complementation to an infinitive. Mormon 6.6. 6. And knowing it to be the last struggle of my people, and having been commanded of the Lord, 
that I should not suffer that the records which had been handed down by our fathers, which were sacred, to fall into the hands of the Lamanites. Suffer that the records to fall into the hands of the Lamanites. 1598, which was also an occasion of his resanation, because he suffered that the truncheon of the lance, which stuck clean through his head, to be with force and violence drawn thereout. 1485. And anon the king commanded that none of them upon pain of death to missay them, ne do them any harm. Missay meaning speak evil against or revile. Again, the king commanded that none of them to missay them. Plural have plus past participle followed by the th plural in a conjoined predicate. Mosiah 24.23. For the Lamanites have awoke and doth pursue thee. Switching from have, doth. 1673. When the churches have felt such dreadful concussion, and bleedeth to this day by so horrid division. Churches have felt, and bleedeth. A large amount of textual evidence, and the foregoing discussion contains only a sliver of it, tells us that Joseph Smith did receive and read a revealed early modern English text. Understandably, he may not have been fully aware of it. This has been a recording of Joseph Smith Read the Words by Stanford Carman, originally published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 18, 2016, read by Stanford Carman. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged. The journal and its website are credited and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com.